diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonally dispatch our worldly business, that we may be more free and fit for the duties of that day. Question 118. Why is the charge of keeping the Sabbath more especially directed to governors, our families, and other superiors? The charge of keeping the Sabbath is more specifically directed to governors or families and other superiors because they have found not only to keep it themselves, but to see that it is observed by all those who are under their charge, and because they are prone oftentimes to hinder them by employments of their own. What are the sins forbidden in the fourth commandment? The sins forbidden in the fourth commandment are all omission of duties required, all careless, negligent, and unprofitable performing of them, and being weary of them, all profaning the day by idleness and doing that which is in itself sinful, and by all needless works, words, and thoughts, and about our worldly employment and recreation. People of God, at this time, as you know, we have our time for confession. This isn't a time when you confess to me or to any mere human being your sins who have no power or possibility of curing you of their ills. This is a time for you to confess to the Lord your God your personal and private sins, not public sins, which we can talk about that distinction another time, but the things that are between you and God. So at this time, we'll have a time of silence for you to confess to the Lord your God your personal and private sins. People of God, we also declare, we confess our corporate sins as a people of God. People of God, do you believe that you've sinned every day in thought, word, and deed? We do. And do you believe that if not for the righteousness of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you would have no hope in life or death? We do. Then I simply declare to you, by way of declaration, what the message of the Bible is from beginning to end. That if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, your sins are forgiven and you are restored to a right relationship with your God. Lord God, our Father, at this time we bring before you the petitions of this particular people of God, this church called by your name according to your purpose. We want to remember before you those of our number suffering serious illness, Lord God. Peggy Ford, Chad Moore, Helen McBride, Joanne Graham, Ava Roten, Dorothy Smith, Bobby Graham. We want to continue to pray for the Lord's comfort and strength for Jamie and Sharon and their families in their time of loss, for Nancy Kerrigan for continued recovery after rehab, rehabilitation, for Chad specifically for successful chemotherapy and physical strength and encouragement, healing for Jen and strength also, for Jim and Teresa Smith for continued healing and blessings, for Andrea Stumpf, prayers for stable blood pressure, for healing and strength, and the Lord's hand on Andrea's mom, who's in the hospital 
dealing with possible heart attack consequences. We're grateful for Preston's surgery and pray for his continued healing and recovery. For Tracy Fisher, for the continued prayers and healing for encouragement for her and Paul. Ariel and Elena Maffitt for continued healing for Elena and Ariel and the Lord's blessing. Healing and complete recovery from the coronavirus for Jan and Howie, from coronavirus and for Jan's sister and also for Pam's sister. Anna Wickens, prayers for the Lord's guidance and blessings as she leads a devotional this week that she will be used by the Lord to do his perfect will. For Jeanette Lyons for continued healing, strength, and well-being. Prayers for the family of Coach Tipton of Lewisburg as they grieve his loss. Those of our number in nursing homes or shut-ins, including Cynthia Hogan, Elaine Garner, Marcia Hammett, and any others of our number in like condition. We pray for a favorable biopsy for Jackie Mann and for your healing and your hand to be upon her during this time. Also, uh, blessings for any of our number that are traveling today. Lord God, our Father, we put these petitions before you because we know that you can and will do something about them. We don't know your perfect or pleasing will, Lord God, but we know that we are your children called by your name according to your purpose, that our names are written on your hand and you have to do with us. You're not a God far away, but you're a God very near. We know that you're a God that can and will heal and also, Lord God, that you do have us in mind. We pray, Lord God, for presidents and princes and kings in the realms of politics and pray that things would occur according to your perfect and pleasing will and that people would rule according to your law, which would bring real and true justice and peace into the land. We pray, Lord God, for your church here and around the world, that as people get together and gather together on this special day which you have declared holy, Lord God, that they would worship you in honor and truth, that they would raise up holy lips to praise your awesome name. We pray, Lord God, that you would grant them peace. We pray these things praying the prayer that your Son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Your next song is in your order of service.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to hand back a small portion of the many blessings you give us, Lord. We praise that you would pray that you would take it, multiply, and use it to spread your gospel, Lord. We ask this in your Son, Jesus' name, Amen. And I forgot to say we don't pass the plate anymore. We got the box in the back. Given us, we give back to you this small portion 
We pray that you would use these funds to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You know, one of the biggest, most difficult things about... You you guys know we've been going through all the laws and all of that. And we've had murder like up to here and all of that. So uh, the Lord's Day is a very common one. We read about it all the time in the Bible. But it's a little difficult to come to terms with. We know it's not exactly the way it was in the Old Testament. But we know it's also not nothing in the New Testament. One of the things we want to guard against is it becoming a presumptuous burden upon the life of the Christian. In other words, you know, uh, do you remember when Jesus was walking around with his guys? And it was the Lord's Day, and they were going from place to place preaching the gospel. And so they grabbed the heads of of the grain, which was one of the laws in the Old Testament, the traveler, the person in need of mercy, and the people doing the Lord's business, could take the grain and rub it between their hands, and they ate the grain. They didn't have time to bake it into bread. And then the Pharisees came and said, look, they're doing labor on the Lord's Day. And Jesus came back to him with this. I'm the Lord's day. Whatever I say on the Lord's day, it goes. And they had to kind of back down. But there was this other time when they were trying to chastise Jesus for doing things on the Lord's day that they thought weren't allowed. Now, most Christians, there's a traditional interpretation of this that goes like this. Jesus was actually breaking the Sabbath to teach them a lesson about not obeying the law of God, which has nothing to do with it at all. He was the Lord of Sabbath. So he said to them, look, you know, as far as work and stuff, if your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, aren't you going to pull it out? Now you can see a couple of the Pharisees, you know, the wheels going in their mind. They're like, I would be godly and I would let the sheep suffer all day in the pit. And I would pull it out the next day if it was alive, right? Which was not Jesus' point at all. His point was, of course you would pull it out. If someone was suffering or in need or dying or would die if you didn't help them, of course you would go and care for them and take them out. He was expecting all the Pharisees to go, well, of course I would pull it out, even if it fell in. Because there's no law against doing such a thing in the Old Testament Sabbath. They just assumed that there was, and they made all these human traditions that conflicted with the law of God. What is the essential word to define and interpret the law of God? Love. So if you're doing love, you're not breaking the law You're fulfilling the law. So his correction to them was to just try to get them to think through it. It's not a violation of the law of God if somebody's suffering or in need or in danger to go and help them. That's why, you know, in the confession they wrote in there, deeds of necessity and mercy are always allowed on the Sabbath, if you're a little bit confused about it. Now, some of you might be old enough to remember blue laws around here, right? Where on Sunday nobody was allowed to do nothing. With the politics of the region... The theology of the region changed. You guys can look this up in your law books. Those blue laws started to fall one by one as the government came in and said, look, you can't have a law. People can't do things on Sunday. Then it became a preference to do everything on Sunday, and people started to miss church, didn't they? They said they wouldn't, but then they did. And now church church attendance, even in this area of the country, is plummeting. But it's partially a consequence of the fact that there's a general disregard for the Lord's Day. Now there's other things to go into, like the idea that, you know, the Old Testament Sabbath was on Saturday. And the New Testament, what we call the Christian Sabbath, is on Sunday. There's a lot of arguments in Scripture for that, of the distance between the two. The Old Testament Sabbath 
in the Bible was not like the New Testament Lord's Day in many ways. Number one, in, it was a day of what? Explicitly. Rest. Were you allowed to do anything? No. Did they generally go to church on that day? Generally not, but often yes, to the synagogue. But they tended to do it on Friday night. Even today, if you want to go to a Jewish church service, it's probably going to be on a Friday. It's not necessarily going to be on the Saturday, though it sometimes is. And we see many times in the Bible where even the apostles went to the synagogues on Saturday because that's when the people were going to be there until they threw them out. Once they threw them out, where did they do all their worship services? What day? The Sunday, the first day of the week. Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the Sabbath and rested in death, did not rise from the dead on the Sabbath. He rose from the dead on the next morning. And Christians have always worshipped on that morning because we're celebrating the resurrection from the dead. We're not celebrating the crucifixion and the death. You might think to yourself, we're celebrating the death of Jesus because it accomplished so much. But if all he would have done is die, you would be sorely disappointed. He rose from the dead on the first day, and Christians have always worshipped on the first day of the week. You look back through the histories, it was always the first day of the week. So even you know the, the standards just kind of say, in the Old Testament way of the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, they rested on the seventh day of the week. But in the New Testament way of the resurrection, we worship the Lord on the first day of the week, and they have done it that way ever since. But still one day out of seven. You have to remember that one day out of seven is not arbitrary. Who was the first person to rest on the seventh day? God rested on the seventh day. You think he was tired? It had been a long week, hadn't it? Six days of heavy creating, had to make the animals, had to make people, had to make the earth, had to make the stars. Obviously, it's a lot of work. And he was just wiped out. Or is that creation ordinance something that he did as a sign, a perpetual sign to us? Now, the Sabbath, carefully in our theology, is not a sacrament. It's not a sacrament. The Lord's Supper and baptism are sacraments. They're a means of grace. The way the Bible talks about the Lord's Day, when they come to Jesus, he says people were not made for the purpose of keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the purpose of the well-being of the people. And when we go through that law and the way it's outlined is one of the longest ones in the Ten Commandments, right? goes into all of these things. You shall do no labor. You, nor your spouse, nor your children, nor your servants, nor even your, what is it? Okay, that's just weird, right? Your animals can't even work. How are they keeping the Sabbath? Believe it or not, God cares about animals and they're a part of his creative economy. And they also get one day out of seven. But the biggest regular thing about the regulation to notice is it's those that are in a superior position of power that are being regulated. It's the kings. It's the princes. It's the slave owners. It's the landholders. They're the ones being regulated so that they don't disrupt the opportunity to worship and have the day of rest for all of the people under their authority. Governments. Princes, those in positions of power and authority are all being regulated to keep from having an undue and ungodly influence upon those under their power and control. Even in this, God limits entire governments. <clears throat> You've heard me say many times one of the most unpopular things about Presbyterians, but it does go back 500 years, is that a government cannot legitimately pass any law against the law of God. 
There's this whole other theology that says Christians should submit to whatever the state does because God gave the state that authority. Oh, no, he did not. God gave the state every legitimate authority. They pass an illegitimate law or an ungodly law or an evil law. We not only have the duty to not obey it, we might legitimately have the duty to disobey it. That's a hard calling. But that's the way the church has judged it every time in history until like 150 years ago. When all of a sudden these new theologies came out, and one of them that came out said, in church on Sunday you're holy, but out in the world you follow their rules. The, the tendency of the church was, of course, to say, you're a Christian 24 hours a day wherever you go. So they wanted to change that a little bit, and they said, no, in the church you're a holy people, but out in the world you've got to live by their rules, right? And that has led even in the South to this idea that it's okay if you're in church on Sunday morning and in the bars on Saturday night. But is it? So in some of these verses that we went over this morning, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day dawning. Hebrews 10.25. Uh, there are two big movements in the American church today. You might not have heard about either one of them, but one of them has this emphasis on what we call the objectivity of the church. The objectivity of the church is you're a member of the church, you're baptized, Absolutely, by defining characteristics, you are a Christian. There's no room for compromise because you're defined as the church. And so if you're not a member of the church, you are not a Christian. Now, we've talked about that many times over the last few weeks, so we don't get that idea, right? But the objectivity of the covenant, you have the sign of the covenant, therefore you have the thing that the sign signifies. I, having been through a lot of different denominations and having been in the church a long time, know full well that every member of a church is not necessarily a Christian. Maybe you've walked that line too, right? Also, aren't there people that are true believers in Christ that aren't necessarily members of a church? They should be, but they're outside the church for now for a time, but they should be brought into the church. That's why in our standards it says there is ordinarily no salvation outside the church. By ordinary, they just mean normal. Normally, salvation is correspondent to being a part of the visible church. But the reason they say ordinarily it's because it's not necessarily so. Do you think Jesus ever dealt with people that were members of the synagogue that were not true believers? It's almost like a silly question, right? They chased after him. They hated his theology. Eventually they killed him. Obviously not big believers in the Messiah, right? Now, to be careful with that, he said very clearly, if you don't believe in me, you don't believe in my father either. So you can't sidestep that and say they had the best of intentions. What they had was a faith problem. They didn't believe in the real God. They believed in the God of their superficial religion. Now, if you want to look across the expanse of the United States and the world and see what's wrong with the world's churches today, it's that there's a lot of people that are not believers in the real gospel and the real Jesus in the churches. And sometimes you can tell who they are by the things that they say, not about Jesus, but about the laws of God. In other words, there are two indicators, right? Some churches say, well, we're gospel-centered. We don't get into all of those laws. We don't expect people to believe it. We accept everybody into the church, everybody to the potluck, right, into membership in Christ's church, people that deny the deity of Jesus Christ, that deny that he died on the cross for our sins, that deny that the word of God is the word of God, and you want to be members with them? You have to remember that the... 
that old rule that a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian because you don't want to be unequally yoked is based on the idea that Christ can't be coupled together with people of the world. In this, you know, this really is, many people say, uh, here's the other side of the spectrum, not, not the objectivity of the church, but there doesn't have to be a visible church. You don't need pastors and elders and you don't need sessions and you don't need presbyteries and you don't need buildings and you don't need anything. You can just go stand out in the field and pray to the flowers. It's very hippie, isn't it? Very hippie. And, and you know, just sing songs and that's your church service. No, it's not. That can be legitimate worship, individual worship. What you're going for on the Lord's Day is coming together in corporate worship. They are both valid, not one without the other. In the Old Covenant, when you had Abraham, one of the first things that he did was start to move toward the incorporation of religion. In other words, God chose one man, but within a few hundred years, you've got Moses. And he draws the people out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And what's the first thing God does in the wilderness? Tells them how to make a tent. Now, weren't they fine just standing out in the desert? But he tells them to make a tent. Now, here's the other funny thing about the tent. The tent moves around for 40 years. But whenever they come together with God, he told them how to do it. It's, it's in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 16. And he tells them, here's the colors of the fabrics that you're going to use. And here's the kind of poles that you're to use. And here's the gold that you use for this. And here's how you carve things into the side. And the tent of meeting went around with them. And the official worship service, where things were declared and when things were blessed, always happened at the tent of meeting. The legitimacy of there being a place, a representative place of an invisible reality goes all the way back into Genesis. It's nothing we made up. You have to remember that sometimes when they were walking around, a pile of rocks was the best that they could do. They were going across the Jordan into the promised land, right? So they made a pile of rocks and we sing about that and we say, here I raise my Ebenezer. And you're thinking, wow, Ebenezer, what a cool old, uh, you know, funny Old Testament name. But an Ebenezer means a pile of stones raised as a temple up to God. That's what raising your Ebenezer means. So when they went over, first you had the kings and then you came to King David, right? And David understood the principle that there has to be a place for the worship of God. And so he went and he got together with the people and he said, we're going to build a temple to God. What did God say? No, you're not. And so David said, why? And the angel came to him and said, Look, God had a different role for you. God loves you. You were his man, but you were his man of blood, not his man of service. Your job was to conquer the reprobate for God and establish a homeland for the people of Israel. But your sword arm is not necessarily suited to celebrate the sacraments of the Lord. And so he told him what? Your son. Your son shall build my house. And so God called Solomon. And he told Solomon, you will build my house. And he told him how to build it and how it was supposed to look and where it was supposed to be done. And it took an entire generation, but they built a house to God. And all the people of Israel had to come at least once a year to that place to celebrate the Day of Atonement, which would tell them everything about Christ and the Messiah that was coming. They had different places to worship, and they built synagogues and churches in the different places in the different cities. But the primary worship had to be done together in one place, in one gathering, in the house of the Lord. Now, if you think in the New Testament that was completely done away with, look how they did it that way all through the New Testament. They came together. 
They came together as a people of God. And in every major movement and motion through the New Testament, there was a gathering of the people together for the worship with rules. What are some of the things that they did in the worship service? Almost always at the beginning of the worship, there was an initial prayer and an invocation. As it says in many of these, there are times when they came together and they sang a psalm, a hymn, or a sacred song. Then there was a pronouncement of God by the reading of the law, which was the Old Testament, which doesn't just mean the laws, it means the scriptures themselves. And then the priest would come and explain it to them so that they could understand it. That's explicitly written in the text. And then there was worship and praise for the things that God did. And they stood and they sang and they sang one song together. These are the things they did when they came together. These are the things that we do now. There is no substitute for this in your private or personal individual worship. One of the big things about the uh, virus coming through is it defined people on instrumental worship. And by instrumental, I mean electronic. Everybody was like, what do we do? Interestingly, the week that the virus came out, we were able to go online. We had been working on that for a while, and instantly we were able to go online, and everybody was able to worship from home by necessity because of fear of an immediate threat to life or well-being. So God is wholly practical. You do whatever's necessary. But after a year or two, a lot of folks were still staying home because it's kind of nice to worship on your couch in your jammies, eating your bagel and drinking your morning coffee, right? So even at the presbytery level and the national level of this denomination, they had a discussion about it. They said, we better put out something so that people understand the position of the church. And the position of the church, the official position, is this is a church service. We might have done other things a different way and allowed things by necessity. But when the necessity has gone, it's not actually church attendance to not be in the room with other believers. Now, you can agree with that or not. It's not like I'm... Uh, telling you a scripture here, but the judgment of the church was online church is not real church. It's not the way they did it in the Bible, obviously. But what they're saying about that is this. You have to be able to see people's eyeballs. And they have to see you. And they have to say, how are you doing? Not in that southern way, in the real way that you're actually asking how they're doing. And they can tell you, I am not doing well. And we can pray together. Notice this breaking bread thing comes up here again and again and again. We have a fellowship meal once a month, right? Uh, often when they talk about the breaking bread thing, they are talking about the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We are highly confident in a few different things about the Lord's Supper. One of them is that they did it every single church service. It's not said to be a commandment or a requirement of Scripture, but we pretty much know that they did it. Another is... I know I'm in the South. But they did it with wine. They didn't do it with grape juice. Nobody did it with grape juice till like the, 19, the 1850s. No denomination, no church, nobody ever did it. Always wine. You remember that time in the, the time of the Reformation when the Roman Catholic Church came in and they were trying to shut down the Presbyterian churches. So they took away all the wine. It was illegal for the churches to have wine. Only a Roman Catholic priest could have it and could administrate the sacraments. So for three years... They celebrated the Lord's Supper with scotch. <laughs> and believe it or not, that's where we got scotch from. They're like, we ain't got no grapes. We've got a lot of moss lying around. And they celebrated. Even the children, like everybody. That was probably the happiest service <laughs> you'd ever been to in your life. 
just going on with this. Uh, this is not an arbitrary thing. This is not a secondary thing. This is the necessary thing. God thought you needed one day out of seven dedicated to him or you're just not going to make it. Or if you make it, you're going to be weak and floppy and given to many different kinds of sins. You're going to be weakened in your soul by the absence of coming together with the people of God. Now at this point, inevitably, people start to bring this kind of thing up. Well, I've been to a lot of churches and they didn't necessarily edify my soul. That might be true. There's all kinds of them out there. Some of them are bad. Some of them are good. As you know, I wouldn't go to a lot of them. I've, I've worshipped and served with a lot of pastors, right, in a lot of churches. It's not all good out there. And some people, rough and tumble characters, they love the church. They want to come into the church because that's where they can exercise power and authority and influence, right? Because the people in the church, they're sheep. They're not fighters. By nature, we are a loving people and accepting people. And so people that are bad characters sometimes make good play of the church by coming into it and causing a lot of trouble. That happens. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But it's not the norm of the church. And you can't give up church just because you've gone to the wrong ones. Instead, you should exercise insight and judgment and due diligence into which church you're affiliated with so that it's a good, safe place for your soul and the souls of your families. That's what's absolutely essential. Acts 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, in many ways, this is a defining characteristic of what you're coming together for a church for. I love a good potluck. I know I'm not supposed to call it potluck. But that's just what it is. It's a pot full of luck. <laughs> it's <laughs> Sometimes I don't even know what I'm saying up here. Uh, the first thing is the apostles' teaching. Now, apostles are different from the priests of the Old Covenant, and they're different from the prophets of the Old Covenant. In some ways, they're a coming together of the prophetic gift and the priestly gift of teaching, preaching, and the alignment of the church with the Word of God. The apostles' teaching is passed down to pastors and ministers so they can pass it on to you. But the first order of business was that their teaching was done. It's not the social things. You know, we got some great stuff that goes on here. A lot of good social things. we got Wednesday night. We've got the after church fellowship meeting. But they are never to take precedence to the word of God. If you don't get that, you have gotten nothing valuable at a church. If you go to a church and it's got the greatest youth group in the history of mankind and they are not preaching and teaching the word of God, you've made a horrible mistake in the lives of yourselves and your children. Possibly the worst mistake. Because the first thing that defines a church is that they are in alignment with the apostles preaching and teaching. And that that is what they teach. But right after that, it's fellowship. Fellowship because you were not made to stand alone. Do you remember how when Adam was made in the beginning, he was completely insufficient of himself. It's God that makes the judgment that he named all the animals and no suitable helpmate was found for him. He was not supposed to be alone. So God gave him a wife and it does actually complete him. We can go through these things. We can argue about the different interpretations all you want. But men were not made to be alone. They were made to be together in marriage. But also marriages and families were made to be together in communities. This makes you stronger, not weaker. This is what builds you up into Christ, the people on your right and on your left. You will not do well 
without them. I have never seen it happen in a lifetime of going to churches. The idea of the independent Christian that doesn't need a church because he's got his own Bible, those people tend to be sad and distant and lonely. It's not enough. It's not what you're made for. The breaking of bread and prayers, is that referring to the Lord's Supper? Well, frankly, it can be, but I think it's probably not. <coughs> Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. If church doesn't make you happy to be there, you're doing it wrong. It's supposed to be the source of your happiness, not a duty that you do out of deliberation because you know it's one of the laws of God. You're supposed to go there and sing the songs and have happiness in your heart. This is your opportunity to open up your mouth to God and say good things to Him. And when you do it, it will make you stronger. These are not mere vain repetitions in order to just say things and get them out like you're some kind of an automaton or a robot or some kind of a mechanism. This is the most human you will ever be is singing songs to God on Sunday morning. This is your greatest opportunity to fulfill the role for which God created you. Because it wasn't to watch 64 hours of television a week. That's now the average, right? It wasn't to just do your job. Even though your job is a godly thing and you work that and you provide for your family, you were made as an actual instrument of worship. And when you think of an instrument that way, think of a piano or think of a trumpet. You are the instrument that brings forth the worship of God and you were created for that purpose. When you do it, you're fulfilling your purpose. And when a person fulfills their purpose, they experience happiness and joy. The churches of Asia send greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Now, a lot of people have used this to say there doesn't have to be an, inst an institutional church. They worshiped in their house. All the churches should be house churches, which is kind of ridiculous because at this time they were being crucified and chased around and put to death by the Romans. They worshipped in a house because they had nowhere else to do it. It doesn't mean that worship in a house is wrong or sinful, but it's not preferred by this text. It's just a practical matter of what they did. Notice that it was the church that came together in the house. It doesn't say they just stayed home and had worship by themselves. That might be a necessity at times and practical, but it's not what they said to do. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your mind? Now, about this, if you guys want a whole service on tongues, I'll be glad to give it to you. I was raised with the Pentecostals. We know a tongue or two. But what this verse is bringing forth is there was a church, right? You can't have this verse unless there was a church. And they did come together as a church, right? In the New Testament. They were not at home. And there were people inside the church. And there were people outside the church. And as a witness to the people outside the church that just came to observe that were not members, if you do things in an unruly or a bad way or you don't do things according to the word of God, they'll just think you're all crazy. And they'll leave. Now, I remember experiencing this as a kid. You know, I went in and I was at a church and my mom's not here, right? All right. And they were all speaking in tongues. And, you know, I, I was a difficult kid. You won't believe this, but I was a difficult kid. I was always thinking about stuff. I'm like, Mom, why are all these people making noises? Oh, this is so crazy. And she's like, no. Do what you're told. Speak in tongues. And I wouldn't do it. 
so I went up to the pastoress after the service. She had been the pastoress there for quite a while. And I said, I knew like two verses out of the whole Bible, literally. But one of them was this one. And it said, if anyone speaks in a tongue in the church, one, two, or three at the most should speak, and only if there's an interpreter. And if there's not an interpretation, everyone should remain silent in the church. I remember that from when I was like 11 years old. And I went up to the pastoress and I asked her, hey, uh, this says this, why do you guys do that? Now, if you think to yourself, yo, you were trying to get her, you were trying to trick her. I only knew two verses. How tricky could I have been? I was just seeing in the church something remarkably different where every person was standing up making noises. It seemed to be directly contrary to what the text said to do in a church service. And uh, she, she pointed at me and she said, why are you trying to thwart the Holy Spirit? I'm like, Really? I didn't even know there was a whole... No, that's, that's what they said. That's what John's disciples said. Uh, you know, because... And now I understand. It's because she was doing stuff. The Bible said exactly, do not do this. She was doing exactly it. So she tried to cover for it by saying it was a new movement of the Holy Spirit. So stop reading that Bible. If you ever want to know what took me out of Pentecostalism pretty early and made me a skeptic and then eventually a fuddy-duddy old Presbyterian, it was that I read the Bible. I swear to you. It was that I kept seeing inconsistencies in there between the way that they were doing it and the way the Bible said to do it. And one of the main things was, if the Bible says to do it this way, you do it that way. If you don't understand why the Bible says to do it, do it anyway and study and learn why the Bible says to do it because he's not going to be wrong. You're going to be wrong, right? As it goes on, there was an entire plethora of things that were happening and existing and being done in the church that were not only in the Bible, but they were contrary to the Bible. And so I had to submit myself to Scripture in order to learn the true path of God. And you can only do that within the context of the church. I went through a phase, too, where I read the church fathers, and I read the confessions, and I was like, I'm going to figure out for myself. To a degree, right? But for the most part, you are not designed to figure out God and the Bible by yourself. Now, I'm a hardcore Protestant. I believe in the individual reading of the Bible. All of us basically decide what we think God says by reading the Bible and comparing it to what people say. But there's great people on all the sides. They're serious thinkers like Augustine and Martin Luther and John Calvin, and they do not agree on everything. Sooner or later, you're going to have to say, I think the Bible says this. I agree with this, right? But that's all happening within the context of the church. You didn't make it all up yourself. I have never seen a good theologian or read one in my life that did it all by themselves. Those guys tend to come up with something that I like to call cockamamie inferences. They're like getting crazy stuff out of the Bible. Like, where did you get that? And they're like, well, I'm a genius. I've never been to church. I did it all myself. That never works out. You learn your theology within the context of the church, not by pronouncements that the church makes. But when you hear that somebody else who studied the Bible 40, 50 years longer than you has this interpretation, and you read it and you go, wow, that makes a lot of sense. There's a wisdom within the context of the church that keeps us safe through time. And we ignore it or we throw it out to our own harm and the harms of our people. So then, it says other things in there you're not going to like. I promise you. 
I'm not one of those guys that goes to great lengths to avoid passages in the Bible you're not going to like, but I promise you, you will get to one you don't like. Most of the time, if you don't like something in the Bible, it's because you didn't understand it, not because you understood it and you didn't like it. That if you really go into it and study it and try to understand it, it's going to be something reconcilable with your basic instincts about right and wrong and who God is and what God does. You know, there was a couple that came a, a while ago, and, and I did that sermon where I said that, you know, God's uh, efficient method of uh, the perpetuity of the death penalty through time is not only written in the Bible for the ancient people of Israel, and it's uh, repeated in the New Testament, but that's because it's for all times and all places for certain kinds of things. And I knew I would never see them again. Our conversation was about 30 seconds long. But they were mad that God was mad. And, you know, at that point, I'll pray for them, but so be it. There's nothing else I can do with that. I can't fix it for them. Can't fix it for them. You guys have seen all these guys that, like, get out of jail early and stuff and go on and do other crimes, and you're like, why wasn't that guy kept in jail? Because the answer was not that they should have been kept in jail. The answer was that they should have had a very important appointment in heaven 20, 30 years ago, and we didn't send them there. I know this is tough teaching, but I don't get to decide it. I just get to put it out there. I'm just trying not to avoid God's judgments for the sake of getting along with you folks. Have you ever seen me go after somebody like, you got to believe what we believe? The reason I don't do that is because I've, I've believed all of it. I've been to all the churches, and it's been a long, slow path to get here. Do I think I'm still going somewhere? No, I'm pretty much sunk in this right now. This is what I think the church's best churches in history have probably been, in forms of government and in form of the understanding of the Bible. Does that mean I think they're faultless? They're completely perfect? That they're the only ones that have the Bible and the Word of God? Absolutely not. But I've seen worse. Maybe you've seen it too. Lord God, our Father, as we get into these things, we praise and honor you, Lord God. Teach us good things from your word. Teach us to be able to do these two things that you taught us to do. To love you and to love each other well. We praise you and thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now with this next one, because uh, Emily is not here, we're going to do this uh, other hymn. Uh, number 242, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. But we're going to do that version where the chorus comes in and it's our God is an awesome God.
come together to have this fellowship meal, Lord God. We just pray that you would bless these things, Lord God, that you would bless our time together, that you would bind us together in unity and mutual love, honor, and respect, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, that you would bless us with these things, Lord, uh, not just so that we might flourish, Lord God, so that we might flourish in you. We thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. People of God, look up and receive the blessing. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you.